good to be together again. And aren't you glad that Jesus' blood completely washed away our sin? There's nothing left that we have to do, work for, participate in. It is simply the blood of Jesus. I'm thankful for that this morning. Well, today is Mother's Day, and we're so glad that you're worshiping with us. We want to, as David said earlier, celebrate and recognize the moms. So moms or moms-to-be, on your way out, we have flowers for each of you. We'd invite you to stop and pick one of those up at the counter as you walk out this morning, and we pray God's blessing on you as you follow the calling that God has given to you. Well, we are in a series in the book of Ephesians. We've been here since the fall, and we are in chapter 4 right now. We're going to jump right in today. Last week, we kind of ran out of time and had to stop at verse 5 of chapter 4, so we're going to pick up in verse 6 this morning. And we will work our way through verse 10. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one, or your device, and follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and we'll pray together and look to God's Word this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you've kept us and preserved us through another week, and here we are now, waiting to hear from you. Thank you for the ability to worship together, to sing together. What an encouragement, Lord, to hear many voices united in praise to you. And I pray that that worship and praise would not stop now when we come to your word, that we would continue to worship, that you would give us appropriate affections as we see who you are, what you have done, how you care for us as a father. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give clarity to me as I speak and open ears for those who hear. We know that your word has power, Lord. So many times we've seen you answer prayer and work through your word, and I pray that you would do that again this morning, that your word would have the full effect that you have designed it to have. It's our only hope, Lord. I don't have anything in me that can convince anyone or persuade anyone, but your word with your spirit have power. And so, Lord, please come and do a work here this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So like I said, last Sunday we worked through verse 5 and we saw Paul give us six things in this 
summary statement or this confession of faith that he gives us. He said there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we covered all of those last Sunday. And now he ends this little section with what would usually be at the front end of some kind of a confession, which is God the Father. And I want us to notice, too, that in this section of Ephesians 4, there is a very clear emphasis on the triune God of the Bible. The fact that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you ever wonder, where did the idea of the Trinity come from? Because the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, but dozens of passages, this one included, have information and reference and language to God the Father, Jesus Christ his Son, that would be the one Lord that we saw, and the one Spirit being the Holy Spirit of God. So, God is three in one. This is a big emphasis in the whole book of Ephesians. You just got to look and see where it is. So let's start now in verse 6 and see how Paul says that there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So there's a couple things that need our attention here. First, Paul is picking up when he says that God is our Father. This is a theme that he started back in chapter 1. It's a familial theme, has to do with family. And he started it in verse 5 of chapter 1 when he said that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. As believers in Jesus, those who have received the gift of faith and the grace of God and salvation, we consider ourselves to be, as the Bible says, children of God, making God our Father. This theme is continued in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 when Paul prays to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And I think that what he's doing is, I mean, I said this last week, I think it was, that a lot of what Paul says is correcting thinking. It's correcting the way of thinking that the Ephesians had, that we might get into. And so rather than the gods of Ephesus being these idols, these statues, these lifeless things, he wants them to know God is not just a statue. He's not just an idol. He's a person. And not only that, but a person that we have relationship with, which is why he uses Father to help us understand. God is not removed from his people. He's our father. And as our father, he cares for us and loves us and provides for us. And I appreciate David making that connection with mothers, how they do the same thing. This is how God acts towards us. And it really isn't much different, I think, in our day when you know Paul is correcting this way of thinking here for the Ephesians and the churches around Ephesus. But For people who don't know God, who don't have a relationship with Him, God can often seem as kind of a distant, unknown, maybe unaware type of a person. You ever talk to people who have this idea that, well, obviously if God was really here and really cared, then things would be different in my life, or so on and so forth, the argument goes. But God is here through His Spirit and through His Word, and therefore we call Him Father. We aren't supposed to think of God the way the world does. We're supposed to think of God the way the Bible instructs us to think about God as our Father. God has brought us into his family. And we covered this a lot in chapter 2, but I'm just going to rehearse it because it's so good. He's brought us into his family, given us a new name, forgiven our sins, 
promised to provide for all of our needs forever. He is the God and Father of us all. And if you don't know God as your Father, you can. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Now, the second thing that needs our attention, in addition to God being Father and Paul telling us that he's not distant, he's not cold, he's not unknown, he is there, you can have relationship with him as a father, the other thing to notice is this word all, four times in verse 6, Paul uses the word all, and we need to figure out what's going on there. Now, there is, of course, a sense in which God is over everything, in everything, as creator, as sustainer, as life giver, which the Bible affirms to us. But I want us to remember that Paul, in all of these instructions, in this section of Ephesians, is not just giving general, overarching principles that apply everywhere and to all time. He is speaking specifically to the church. Okay, so let's, let's keep that context in mind when we consider what is going on. He is writing specifically about the unity that ought to exist inside the church. And we saw last week that when we preach the gospel, we preach an exclusive gospel, in a sense. And what I mean by that is that there is not many ways to God, there is one way. There are not many spirits, there is one spirit. There are not many bodies, there is one body, okay? So we we have this theme going on here. So when Paul says all, 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 four times in verse 6, I'm going to argue that he primarily is speaking about and to the church, to believers in Jesus. All things may be from God, and they are. All things hold together in him, but the presence of God as Father is only felt and known by people who have relationship with him. In order for us to experience and maintain the unity that Paul is driving at here, we must confess. As as we confess there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, we must confess there is one God and Father of us all. He is closest to us as family who believe in Jesus. Now whether we talk about a time like Paul's, where there were many gods, there was a God for every, I mean you could just make one up if you didn't have one for your circumstance. They were all over the place. Or whether we're talking about a time like ours that has by and large dismissed God, right? God is not worshipped, he is not revered, he is not exalted or glorified or honored as he should be. But we need to remember that the truth of the Bible stands. That as those of us who have received the gift of faith from God, who trust in Jesus, we live in a world that is God-created, God-controlled, God-sustained, and God-filled. And of course, everyone lives in this world, but we who have the Spirit of God recognize this. And I think that's the difference. It's not that God isn't over all and through all and in all in a universal or general sense. It is that for those who trust in him, who can rightly call him Father, we go beyond recognizing and we worship him for that and we praise him for that. And I think that's the goal of the scriptures. That's the point. God didn't create everything and sustain everything and fill everything just so he can kind of operate behind the scenes as some unknown, unseen, unheard 
Remember when you were little, parents would say, children should be seen and not heard. (laughs) That's not God. His design is not to be hidden in the background. His design for himself, for his person, for his glory to be magnified in the world. He is the God and Father of us all. And he ought to dominate our lives. As Christians, I just want to encourage us. We should never stand by while the world belittles our God. I mean, you can't even listen to the news without hearing someone take God's name in vain. You should never put up with that. Never. There is one God, one Father of us all. Now, like I said, I I don't mean that there isn't like this universal and general sense that God is in everything, but I think Paul would have us see this with special emphasis to the church. This is the context that he is writing in. We ought to recognize God's activity and authority in our lives and worship him and praise him for that. And that, by the way, is how other people come to know God. Right? When, when we take what we see in the world, whether it be creation, as Romans 1 says, that God is clearly seen in the things that have been made, or whether we take our testimony as believers, or the way that we live our life, or the way that we communicate, or whatever it is, that is the way that people come to know God. It's not just that we're generally good people. Nobody's good. It's that we have God inside of us through His Spirit. And people see that then should see that, and come to know him. So, Paul now moves from verse 6, and he's using this all-corporate, inclusive language, and in verse 7, he's going to make a turn to an individual language. Read verse 7 with me. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And I think Paul starts with the word but, to signal a contrast, right? We're moving from, this is what goes on, all of the church, all of this, all of life, and now there's going to be an individual application here in verse 7. I mentioned this last week, that unity in the church does not mean sameness. I think sometimes we hear unity or united or whatever, and we think everything's the same. And that isn't the case, and this verse, I think, proves it. I mean, if everybody were the same, and we had the same giftings, the same interests, the same level of enthusiasm for those things, it would be a really boring world. I think God loves the diversity of the way that he has gifted his people. So unity doesn't mean uniformity. In fact, I think unity is best highlighted oftentimes when you have people who are very different very differently gifted, very different personalities, whatever the case may be, and they come together and work towards a common goal. This is what should happen in our churches, which is why I think Paul puts this verse in the section of unity in the church. Because when we have people who share not only common interests, we all are under the banner of Christ as believers, but we have very different giftings. And when those people come together and are committed to saying, we're going to live our lives in a way that honors God, shows that we love Him, spread the gospel to the world, that is unity. That's what God has designed for His church. Paul writes to inform us in verse 7 that even though there is great unity in God, We just saw the seven one statements, right, in verses four through six. In our churches, there is unity. In our faith, there is unity. But there is also 
great diversity. And I think that diversity is by design. You guys remember back several months ago, we were in chapter 2, verse 10, where it said, we are God's, individually, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared for us to walk in. God created each of us with abilities, with interests and and passions and, and things that we ought to do and work in the church and serve one another. And I think when we use those things in the way that the Bible instructs us to, two things happen. We glorify God for using what he's given to us and we strengthen or serve those around us. John Calvin, commenting on this text, said, No member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfection as to be able, without assistance from others, to supply his own necessities. What he is saying is that none of us possess in ourselves everything we need to live the Christian life. This is why belonging to a church is so important. Being in fellowship with other believers. Because there are people here, right now in this room, that are tremendously gifted in areas that you and I are not. And when those things come together for the common purpose, fulfilling the mission of the church, honoring the Lord, glorifying Him, making disciples, all those things, when we work together, God is glorified in those things. That's what the scriptures tell us. This is how God and His wisdom has designed the church to function. For example, Melissa Johnson is our nursery coordinator. She does a wonderful job, everything nurse-related. Jan Anderson, women's ministry leader. Now, both of these women serve in capacities that I am not gifted in and that many of us are not. But I'm so thankful that they do because in doing these things, our church is strengthened because we have a variety of giftings. We have received grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what are we to make of this phrase here at the end of the verse, according to the measure of Christ's gift? Does that mean that Jesus looks at his church and is like, I don't want you to do much, I'm going to give you a little bit, but you're going to be really cool, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of grace over here. Is that what it means? Hopefully everyone can say no together. I think that Paul is saying that Jesus Christ as head of the church, remember that language from earlier in Ephesians, has portioned out giftings in the way that he knows best will serve the church. Okay, when it says according to the measure of Christ's gift, it is not saying some people are less important, some people are more important. It is saying Christ, as the head of the church, knows what the church needs and therefore has given each one of us giftings according to what he knows is best. Now, there are two texts outside of Ephesians that really helped in my understanding of this. And I'd encourage you to at least write these down, or you can turn there with me right now. First one would be Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. Listen to what Paul says here. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Listen to verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. If prophecy 
in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal. We've all been given different giftings according to the measure of Christ's gift and according to his grace. And he has given us a wide variety. And I think if we could only recognize that God has uniquely equipped us individually and stop comparing to other people and say, well, I don't have the really public gift. I don't have the gift that's really meaningful. I don't have, that doesn't matter. That's not how God gifted you. We've each received a gift from Christ. And the point isn't that we use it in the most public, noticeable way. The point is that you use it for the good of the church and for the glory of God. Another text, really important, 1 Peter 4. 10 and 11. This is one of my favorite texts in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4.10 As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Same idea. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, Peter says, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever. Amen. And we know the word amen means let it be so. And so I repeat, let it be so in our church. Would we all use the giftings that God has given us so that we not only serve the body, which is important, but it is not primary. The primary thing is that we honor God with the giftings that he has given to us and that he receives the glory. And we're going to talk about the importance of that as we close this morning. Now, let's look at verses 8 through 10 for the rest of our time together this morning. And this section may seem at first glance to be kind of strange. We have all the ascending and descending and you kind of wonder what's going on with all this language. So let's read this, verses 8 through 10, and then we'll make a couple comments on it. So back to Ephesians 4, verse 8. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now there's a couple interpretive challenges here, and we'll deal with both of them. But first, and I think most obvious, this verse, verse 8, is a quotation from Psalm 68. Okay? Only in Psalm 68, there's a word change, or I should say Paul changed the word from the psalm. So let me read it for you. This is Psalm 68, verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Notice the word change? In Ephesians 4, 8, we read not that he received gifts, but that he gives gifts to men. This isn't just a different yet similar word. I mean, receiving and giving are, I think, pretty commonly understood as opposite things. <laughs> They're very different meanings, right? So what's going on here? Well, I think when we read Psalm 68, which I would encourage you to do, I know you don't have anything else to do this afternoon, so bust out Psalm 68 and take a look at this. We get the picture of a Lord returning from battle 
victorious, leading those whom he has conquered, and having received the plunders of war, he has gifts to give to his kingdom. Okay, that's kind of the summary of the Psalm 68. It's common knowledge that gifts were to be given to a king, right? Whether it be in the biblical times, whether it be in the Middle Ages or whatever, you didn't come before a king without bringing something. It's not in the nature of kings to give, it's in the nature of kings to receive, at least from the way the world sees it. We even see this with the three wise men that came and visited Jesus when he was a young boy. They brought him gifts because he was a king. This was the widely accepted. Now consider what Paul is saying then in Ephesians chapter 4. He is highlighting, I think, an aspect of Jesus that we need to understand. He, he didn't misquote the psalm, by the way. He didn't read it and go, mm, I don't like that, I'm going to change the word. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in writing the book of Ephesians, knew what he was doing, and here's what I think is going on. He is emphasizing a part of Christ and making a distinction between earthly kings, and that would be the generosity of Jesus.